I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. First off, apologies. Uh, this episode's coming out a few days late. Um, had a lot of things going on this week between uh, vet appointments and uh, wedding plans, so uh, couldn't get this one out on time. Again, not going to uh, make that a, a normal thing, but uh, this week it was it was kind of inevitable. So, uh, yeah, sorry for that. Uh, the episode this Friday will still come out on time. It's already been recorded. Uh, so, yeah, we're not pushing day of release or anything. Just this episode's coming out a little late. But, uh, yeah, so let's focus on uh, this week. We are back to talking about Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations with Book 1, Chapter 8, The Wages of Labor. Now... If you work a job and feel like you're not getting paid enough, then this chapter is for you. Uh, Smith has established wages of labor as, as one of the key factors in determining the price of commodities. So the next logical question to ask yourself is, okay, well then what factors determine the wages of labor? So Smith starts this off with, with his usual circling back to, to core principles. Uh, he says, quote, The produce of labor constitutes the natural recompense or wages of labor. In that original state of things, which precedes both the appropriation of land and the accumulation of stock, the whole produce of labor belongs to the laborer. He has neither landlord nor master to share with him. So, so once again, Smith returns to his basic tenet that the reward for labor is based on the effort put into labor. In a kind of prehistoric time, if you, if you put in the effort to hunt six deer, 
your compensation for that effort would be six deer. Now, that's not how wages of, of Smith's day were determined, and, and as he's elaborated on in previous chapters, the growing complexity of how prices for anything are determined was, was due to the nature of the economy growing more complex. Once stockholders accumulate stock and, and hire labor to work for them, the price of the end product requires the addition of the profits for the holders of stock. Once land becomes privately owned and, and thus rented out to the people for use for their labor, the price of the rent of the land needs to also be added to the end price of the commodity. Smith does, for a moment, take us down a, a somewhat interesting path by describing a world where the improvements that came from increased efficiency occurred, uh, which, which Smith would insist that they would because improved efficiency is kind of hardwired into the nature of human beings, but the advent of stock and rent had not. In Smith's words, quote, had this state continued, the wages of labor would have augmented with those improvements in its productive powers to which the division of labor gives occasion. All things would gradually become cheaper. Uh, this would have been produced by a, a smaller quantity of labor, and as the commodities produced by equal quantities of labor would naturally, in this state of things, be exchanged for one another, they would have been purchased likewise with the produce of a smaller quantity. But though all things would have become cheaper in reality, in appearance, many things might have become dearer than before, or have been exchanged for a greater quantity of other goods. Let us suppose, for example, that in the greater part of employment, the productive powers of labor had been improved tenfold, or that a day's labor could produce ten times the quantity of work which it had done originally, but that in a particular employment, uh, they had been improved only double, or that a day's labor could produce only twice the quantity of work which it had done before. In exchanging the produce of a day's labor in the greater part of employments for that of a day's labor in this particular one, ten times the original quantity of work in them would purchase only twice the original quantity of it. Any particular quantity in it, therefore, a pound weight, for example, would appear to be five times dearer than before. In reality, however, it would be twice as cheap. Though it requires five times the quantity of other goods to purchase it, it would require only half the quantity of labor either to purchase or produce it. The acquisition, therefore, would be twice as easy as before. So, that's a long way around to talk about relative pricing. And Smith moves off of this for now, but I think that it's worth bringing up because it's an interesting idea, especially in the modern world where efficiency is rapidly increasing. And Smith here is pointing out something that behavioral economists and, and marketing professionals will eventually spend a great deal of time thinking about, which is that we as people have this somewhat odd tendency to compare prices of things not to each or to each other rather than comparing the price of the thing to itself this can sometimes lead to, to problems of perception and create false narratives about the nature of the economy 
I'm going to leave that there for now. I, I've got a mind to do a whole separate episode on this idea and, and how it plays itself out into our behavior as consumers. But I did want to point that all uh, that out to all of you right now. Uh, we'll call that some food for thought. So as stated before, the kind of economy in which the labor kept 100% of their output did not persist. Uh, appropriation of land and accumulation of stock was introduced and created costs and, and efficiencies of their own. In this state of the economy, Smith then wants to examine what determines and, and, and what factors affect the determination of wages of labor. And, and he's distilled it down to a key dynamic, which is important to understand but before talking about any issue with regards to wages. He says, quote, What are the common wages of labor? depends everywhere upon the contract usually made between those two parties, whose interests are by no means the same. The workmen desire to get as much, the masters to give as little as possible. The former are disposed to combine in order to raise, the latter in order to lower the wages of labor. So wages are borne out from the competing interests of the laborers and the owners. If you're a worker, you want to get paid as much as possible for the work that you do. If you're the owner of a business, you'd like to pay your employees as little as possible for the work that they do. Now, you may hear these statements, and depending on where you are in life and what you do, you may want to cast judgments against at least one of them. If you're a manager, or, or an owner, you may hear that labor always wants as much money as possible for the work. And, and you know, you may think that they're overvaluing themselves and don't deserve what they're asking for. If you're a laborer, you may hear that ownership always wants to pay out as little as possible and think that they're greedy and stingy. But it's important when performing an economic analysis, especially when it comes to examining self-interest, to not cast judgments or make value statements. Things like this take you down a long, winding road of what should be rather than looking at things as they are. What should be doesn't really help. It's inherently subjective, and so every, everyone's concept of should is going to be different. And if you're, if you're approaching a problem from the stance of should, you're never going to reach any kind of real conclusion because you'll constantly find yourself at odds with what everyone else's version of should is. Instead, you need to look at what is. Workers want as much as they can possibly get because they want to be compensated for their labor in a way that's going to let them live comfortably and provide for their families ownership wants to pay out as little as possible, not because they want to see their employees starve to death, but because they too want to maximize their profits so that they can live comfortably and provide for their families. And in economics, pitting two conflicting interests against each other in the way that determining wages does usually gets a good result. I've mentioned Bef I've mentioned it before, but I'm stealing a term from political science, and, and when I talk about creating tensions in systems like this, tensions exist when 
two groups with competing or diametrically opposed interests are, by the structure of the system, set against each other. Again, in political terms, it's, it's why the framers of the Constitution gave the U.S. three branches of government. Both the Congress and the pres presidency want to be the guiding force of the government. And because they're essentially co-equal in power, they pull against each other, creating a tension. Picture it like, like a literal game of tug-of-war, with all the members of the legislative branch on one end of the rope and all the members of the executive branch on the other. Now, if either group were to win, we'd wind up with a bad result. A, a government dominated e by either branch would have some serious issues. And by having them constantly tugging against each other, we keep ourselves somewhere in the middle, getting the advantages of each while avoiding the pitfalls. The point is to never resolve the conflict for supremacy, because the best outcome results from the constant tension between the two. Tensions also exist when it comes to major political issues. Liberty versus security is a tension issue. If liberty were to win out, and we were all granted pure, total liberty, we'd be living in the Hobbesian state of nature. It, it would be anarchy. But if security were to win out, we'd be living in an Orwellian police state. By having these two ideas in tension with each other, we get as much liberty as we can while still getting as much security as we can. Neither's complete, but you don't really want either one to be. The same is true with wages. If workers were to win out, it, when it comes to their self-interest and, and be paid the maximum amount possible, then the business that they work for would go bankrupt and collapse. If management were to win out and be able to pay their workers next to nothing, then the labor force would soon dry up due to, well, starvation. Either extreme leads to a bad result. But when you put those interests in tension with each other, what you should get is labor being paid as much as the company can bear, while ownership gets as much profit as they can while sustaining a workforce. Neither side gets entirely what they want, so everyone wins. Sounds good? Well, don't get too happy, because there's a problem, one that Smith is very quick to point out. Quote, It is not, however, difficult to foresee which of the two parties must upon all ordinary occasions, have the advantage in the dispute, and force the other into compliance with their terms. The masters, being fewer in number, can combine much more easily, and the law besides authorizes, or at least does not prohibit, their combinations, while it prohibits those of the workmen. We have no acts of parliament against combining to lower the price of work, but many against combining to raise it. In all such disputes, the masters can hold out much longer. A landlord, a farmer, a master manufacturer, or a merchant, though they did not employ a single workman, could generally live a year or two upon the stocks which they have already acquired. Many workmen could not subsist a week, few could subsist a month, and scarce any a year without employment. In the long run, 
The workman must it may be as necessary to his master as his master is to him, but the necessity is not so immediate. When we're talking about the advantages created by putting two co-equal branches of government in tension with each other, the benefits of that dynamic rely on them being, well, co-equal. The powers that each wield are equivalent to each other, as is their ability to wield them, so the tension can be permanent, because no party can ever really have a clear advantage over the other. The flag in the middle of the rope may shift in favor of one side or the other, but they're essentially equally matched. Their positions are symmetrical. When it comes to labor and management, however, there's a pretty serious asymmetry at play in their dynamic. And it's exactly as Smith describes it. The problem comes from the fact that ownership tends to be wealthier than labor, which means that ownership can afford to shut down their company, if need be, for a relatively long period of time. If labor is demanding higher wages and ownership refuses to give in to their demands, and the labor force stops working to try to force the issue, ownership can still cover their personal expenses and continue to live pretty comfortably for weeks, months, years in some cases. And on the other hand, the members of the labor force tend to not have such a stockpile of wealth. Many laborers are living paycheck to paycheck, and if they don't get paid that week, they will not have money for the basic necessities of life. They won't be able to afford food or heat their homes or pay their rent. This creates a critical asymmetry that can throw the advantages of the tension out the window. Essentially, ownership can force labor to work for less through a form of passive extortion. Now, Smith makes reference to a possible way of resolving this issue in the same passage that I read earlier. And it, it's very much a sign of the times in which he was writing. He, he points out that it's easier for ownership to organize amongst themselves uh, to lower wages than it is for labor to organize amongst each other to raise them. And that was true at the time. In fact, as, as Smith points out, there were no laws against such agreements between owners, but there were laws against such agreements between workers. This, of course, has changed somewhat in the modern era. There are now laws in most countries prohibiting companies from agreeing either explicitly or tacitly to not compete against each other. And that can include not just for prices, but also for wages. And also, the laws prohibiting workers from organizing amongst themselves to demand higher wages have largely been lifted. Today, we have labor unions that, that serve to bring the dynamic between labor and management into a more symmetrical form. Of course, this isn't across the board, and there are still many fields in which organized labor is either undermined or outright prohibited, but we'll cover that in its entirety in a different episode. For now, I'm just going to read a passage from the chapter where, where Smith, in essence, predicts the next hundred years of labor relations. Uh, in fairness, it's not really a prediction because these things were happening in the present to him, but 
If you know your history, you can clearly see that things would continue in the way that Smith described for quite some time beyond his writings. Quote, We rarely hear, it has been said, of the combination of masters, though frequently of those of workmen. But whoever imagines upon this account that masters rarely combine is as ignorant of the world as of the subject. Masters are always and everywhere in, in a sort of tacit but constant and uniform combination not to raise the wages of labor above their actual rate. To violate this combination is everywhere a most unpopular action and a sort of reproach to a master among his neighbors and equals. We seldom indeed hear of this combination because it is the usual and the one may say the, the natural state of things, which no one ever hears of. Masters, too, sometimes enter into particular combinations to sink the wages of labor, even below this rate. These are always conducted with the utmost silence and secrecy, till the moment of execution, and when the workmen yield, as they sometimes do, without resistance, though severely felt by them, they are never heard of by other people. Such combinations, however, are frequently resisted by a contrary, defensive combination of the workmen, who sometimes, too, without any provocation of this kind, combine of their own accord to raise the price of their labor. Their usual pretenses are sometimes the high price of provisions, sometimes the great profit which their masters make by their work, but whatever the, their combination, be offensive or defensive, they are always abundantly heard of. In order to bring the point to a speedy decision, they have always recourse to the loudest clamor and sometimes to the most shocking violence and outrage. They are desperate and act with the folly and extravagance of desperate men who must either starve or frighten their masters into an immediate compliance with their demands. The masters upon these occasions are just as clamorous upon the other side, and never cease to call aloud for the assistance of the civil magistrate and the rigorous execution of those laws which have been enacted with so much severity against the com combinations of servants, laborers, and journeymen. The workmen, accordingly, very seldom derive any advantage from the violence of those tumultuous combinations which, partly from the interposition of the civil mag magistrate, partly from the superior steadiness of the masters, part, uh, partly from the necessity which the great part of the workmen are under of submitting for the sake of present subsistence, generally end in nothing. But the punishment or the ruin of the ringleaders. But those in disputes with their workmen, masters must generally have the advantage. There is, however, a certain rate below which it seems impossible to reduce, for any considerable time, the ordinary wages even of the lowest species of labor. This leads into a, a much more macro view of the economy that, that Smith some, spends some time talking about. He talks about there being a, a kind of natural minimum that wages can't ever really fall under over over a long-run view. The, the minimum is based on the cost of subsistence. Smith argues that over the very long run, workers need to be paid at least enough to sustain not just themselves, but also to support their families with enough to raise at least two children. Now, 
This isn't entirely a humanitarian stance. The, the pure economics of it is that if, if workers can't afford to support a family, then they will not have children, or those children will die. In which case, there will not be more workers available in the future. Uh, Smith is taking a, a, an extraordinarily macro view of the situation, as he tends to do at times, uh, wherein we can't simply think of the economy in terms of, of a single quarter's earnings or the output of a year, but instead understanding that the interrelated nature of everything to the point that we have to consider that the human race's ability to sustain itself and in fact grow so that we can maintain the great network that is the economy. Now, if wages were to universally fall below that minimum rate of, of family subsistence, the labor market would eventually resolve itself through those wonderful, magical market forces that we've been talking about. Imagine for a second a world in which wages were forced below that family subsistence rate. The result would be that over the course of a generation, there would be fewer children born, which would lead to a negative population growth rate, so that by the time the next generation is ready to enter the workforce, there are fewer available workers than there are jobs. As Smith says, quote, the scarcity of hands occasions a competition among masters who bid against one another in order to get workmen and thus voluntarily break through the natural combination of masters not to raise wages. So wages would rise in order to entice workers when, when workers are in short supply, and they would rise to a point where workers could afford to live and raise a family, and the market for labor would trend back towards equilibrium. Now, there are a lot of other variables that could play into this, but it's a simple example that, that Smith provides to demonstrate that the market forces at play for commodities are the same market forces at play when it comes to the market for labor. When it comes to raising wages, though, Smith feels that no force is more powerful than an increase in national wealth. And he makes an, an interesting point here, that it isn't about the amount of wealth but rather the amount of the increase in wealth that matters. Quote, It is not the actual greatness of the national wealth, but its continual increase, which occasions a rise in the wages of labor. It is not, accordingly, in the richest countries, but in the most thriving, or in those where, which are growing rich, the fastest, that the wages of labor are highest. And this is precisely why, when we look at the state of the national economy, we tend not to look at the overall wealth of a country, but rather we use the growth rate. When economists want to use a number to describe the state of things, they don't tend to use the actual gross national product, but rather the rate at which the GNP is, gr is growing or shrinking. Of course, we've talked in previous episodes about how even that number can be, mm, at times, misleading. But, all things being equal, it is the more descriptive number to use. Smith takes us on a 
bit of a world tour to, to make his point here, comparing England, which at the time would have been probably the wealthiest country in the world, but pointing out that despite its great wealth, its growth rate is small, uh, leading to lower wages in England than uh, than are being seen, again, in Smith time, Smith's time in the North American colonies, where wealth is much less, but the rate of growth is much higher. Unsurprisingly, Smith's examples serve to perfectly illustrate his overall theory. So, I won't belabor the point, but... I always get a kick out of the fact that Smith spends a good two pages of the chapter being more than a little mystified by the fact that China seems to have a stationary amount of wealth but is still maintaining its vast labor force. Apparently, even 200 years ago, the Chinese economy was frustrating to economists. Now, well, Smith has established that wages are governed by a certain minimum based on the needs of laborers, he does make it clear that the needs and expenses of workers do not determine wages. And he can see this through the difference between summer and winter wages. Quote, Summer wages are always highest, but on account of the extraordinary expense of fuel, the maintenance of a family is most expensive in winter. Wages, therefore, being highest when the expense is lowest, it seems evident that they are not regulated by what is ne necessary for this expense, but by the quantity and supposed value of the work. A laborer, it may be said, indeed, ought to save part of his summer wages in order to defray his winter expenses, and that through the whole year, they do not exceed what is necessary to maintain his family throughout the whole year. Basically speaking, while there may be a price floor for wages, or for the wages of labor, that is based on the minimum needs to sustain a worker and their family, the overall costs of things to sustain the family are not what determines wages. If they were, Wages would rise in the, in the winter time to match the increased expenses that workers incurred during that season, and they would go down in the summertime in reaction to the decreased costs. But they don't. So while workers need to earn above a certain minimum, that minimum doesn't exist from month to month or paycheck to paycheck. It exists across the entirety of a year. And there's an expectation that workers will save some of their higher summer wages in order to cover expenses during the leaner winter months. Smith continues by observing that wages are also not directly affected by the cost of provisions. The price of food and other necessary goods can vary wildly throughout the year, while wages are unmoved during that same period. Now, there is, of course, a connection between the cost of provisions and the cost of labor, but it's more indirect than one might think. As we know from previous chapters, if wages were to decrease, then workers would have less money to spend, which would decrease the effective demand for certain products. Maybe you don't buy the 
uh, bag of oranges because you barely have enough money to for the, the meat and grain that you need to feed your family. Well, those lower wages might not impact the price of oranges, but a decrease in effective demand will. If oranges were so expensive and wages so low that most people could not afford oranges, then the grocer would be forced to drop the price of oranges or risk losing out on sales when the oranges rot. This would cause the price of oranges to drop back to a place where the workmen, with their lower wages, could afford them. Of course, it would also likely cause the grocer to order fewer oranges in the future, so at the end of the day, with the lower wages, you may just be out of luck when it comes to oranges. But it's important to distinguish between lower wages impacting prices of goods and the prices of goods impacting wages. There is a connection between the two, but the direction of that connection is significant. Smith sums it up by saying, quote, the difference, however, in the mode of their subsistence is not the cause, but the effect of the difference in their wages, though by a strange misapprehension I have frequently heard it represented as the cause. It is not because one man keeps a coach while his neighbor walks afoot that one man is rich and the other poor, but because the one is rich he keeps a coach, and because the other is poor he walks afoot. This is one of those concepts that is incredibly important, and one of the things that economists and, and economics as a subject is often very focused on, which is the difference between a correlation and a causation, and within that, the true direction of that cause. In the episode so far of, of this podcast, you, you've heard this brought up uh, quite a bit. And you're going to keep hearing about it, because determining the true cause and the nature of the true cause of any effect is critical to understanding what is happening and what the best way to alter what is happening might be. As he continues, Smith also touches on, on another hallmark of economic analysis. He says, quote, The price of labor, it must be observed, cannot be ascertained very accurately anywhere different prices being often paid at the same place and for the same sort of labor, not only according to the different abilities of the workmen, but according to the easiness or hardness of the masters. Where wages are not regulated by law, all that we can pretend to determine is what are the most usual. And what he says, what he's saying here. Is, is that when you hear an economist make statements or, or predictions, you have to realize that they're doing so not based on specific instances, but rather by looking at the average of all instances. This may seem like a cop-out, but, but really, when you're trying to analyze something as complex as the economy, or even just a single market within that economy, you are dealing with so many variables that are directly impacting outcomes, as well as any number of unknown variables which may be directly or indirectly affecting outcomes, that it's near impossible to create a definitive answer that will fit every permutation, that, that will fit every single circumstance. I think I, I've talked about this before, but 
I once read a book that, that compared economics to, to meteorology and quantum physics. The problem with making predictions in all three of these subjects is that you're dealing with systems that are so complicated that they can be affected by so many outside factors that it becomes impossible to say anything meaningful with absolute accuracy. It's why your, your local weathermen will never say it's going to rain. They'll say that there's a 90% chance of rain. Because so many things that can't possibly be accounted for can potentially impact and change the course of a weather system. You, you can never say with absolute certainty that something is going to happen. You're left with just a high likelihood that it will. In economics, you have a similar issue with, with a slightly different reaction. What we do is, is to look at as many variables as possible and to the best of our ability reach a conclusion that would apply to the vast majority of them. We, we answer the average. The downside of doing that is when you're looking at averages, there are always going to be outliers. There, there are going to be data points that are way outside where most of the data points are. If you understand how this kind of analysis works, those outliers are, are simply that. They impact the average slightly, but are not usually significant. The problem comes when amateurs out there decide that they can disprove economic analysis by pointing out one of the outliers. They, they, they come in and say, well, the economist said that wages are at, you know, this, but my buddy's uncle's best friend makes this, so the economist must be wrong. And if you've ever heard someone say something like that, or, full honesty, if you've ever said something like that, then this show is really for you, and uh, you know why the title of this podcast is what it is. Uh, there will always be variances between data points, uh, but a lot can be discovered, and a, and a lot of useful conclusions drawn by looking at the average, even if it doesn't apply to every scenario. So back to wages. Smith notes next that while wages are not determined by the cost of goods, that the ability of the common labor to enjoy the products of a society is very important to the society as a whole. He says, quote, Servants, laborers, and workmen of different kinds make up the far greater part of every great political society. But what improves the circumstances of the greater part can never be regarded as an inconveniency to the whole. No society can surely be flourishing and happy, of which the far greater part of the members are poor and miserable. It is but equity, besides that they who feed, clothe, and lodge the whole body of the people should have such a share of the produce of their own labor as to be themselves tolerably well fed, clothed, and lodged. Now, this is one of those quotes that will catch some people off guard when talking about Adam Smith. Most people who, who claim to advocate for a free market will, will glom on to the quote about the, the butcher and the baker and the brewer not providing their wares out of good nature, but because they're being paid for it. And that is quite true. Self-interest does drive a market system. However, Smith is very clear that self-interest 
you can't be run as a zero-sum game where everyone is trying to win everything and leave nothing for anyone else. As he says right here, a society cannot be successful if the majority of the members of that society are destitute. And in a market sense, this fits perfectly well with the rest of Smith's teachings. If the working population is so poor that they cannot afford to purchase the goods made and offered by the market, then those who make and sell those goods will not make any significant profits, and thus they will suffer. And if the manufacturers and sellers are, are, now, are now also destitute, then the landowners who make their money through rents will stop getting paid, and they too will be destitute. The economy depends on money cycling through it. The more money that the common laborer makes, the more money he has to spend on goods and services. The more money he spends on those things, the more money that the manufacturers and sellers of those goods and services make. The more money they make, the more they can spend on expanding their businesses and on and on and on. This isn't to say that we need to ensure or enforce that everyone be a millionaire, but it is important for everyone in the economy to realize that there is a great deal of value and profit, because self-interest still drives the economy, to be realized by the poor being less poor. Smith then takes this one step further, and while still keeping to the notion of self-interest, makes a compelling case against the institution of slavery when it comes to the economy. Earlier in the chapter, he notes that while the wages of paid labor change depending on the output of the labor, slaves incur a cost to the slave owner regardless of their output. While slaves may not be paid a wage, the slave owner has to provide them with their basic needs, food and shelter, and that costs money. While the owner of a business pays his employees based on what they produce and, and leaves it to them to utilize those wages to cover their living expenses, the slave owner has to cover living expenses regardless of what the output they produces. Smith spells out the inefficiency of slavery further in this section where he says, quote, the wear and tear of a slave, it has been said, is at the expense of his master, but that of a free servant is at his own expense. The wear and tear of the latter, however, is in reality as much at the expense of his master as that of the former. The wages paid to journeymen and servants of every kind must be such as may enable them once uh, one with another to continue the race of journeymen and servants according to the increasing, diminishing, or stationary demand of the society may happen to require. But though the wear and tear of a free servant be equally at the expense of his master, it generally costs him much less than that of a slave. The fund destined for replacing or repairing, if I may say so, the wear and tear of the slave, is commonly managed by a negligent master or careless overseer. That destined for performing the same office with regard to the free man is managed by the free man himself. The disorders which generally prevail in the economy of the rich naturally 
introduce themselves into the management of the former. The strict frugality and parsimonious attention of the poor as naturally established themselves in that of the latter. Under such different management, the same purpose must require very different degrees of expense to execute it. It appears accordingly, from the experience of all ages and nations, I believe, that the work done by freemen comes cheaper in the end than that performed by slaves. Throughout this chapter, Smith is very much of the opinion that higher wages lead to a generally more productive society. Not only do higher wages increase the effective demand for the goods offered within the market, but they also make for more efficient workers, thus increasing the overall output. Quote, it deserves to be remarked, perhaps, that it is in the progressive state, while the society is advancing to the further acquisition, rather than when it has acquired its full complement of riches, that the condition of the laboring poor, of the great body of the people, seems to be the happiest and the most comfortable. It is hard in the stationary and, and miserable in the declining state. The progressive state is in reality the cheerful and hearty state to all the different orders of society. The stationary is dull, the declining melancholy. The liberal reward of labor, as it encourages the propagation, so it increases the industry of the common people. Last year, Professor Andrew Oswald, along with doctors Eugene Proto and Daniel Scroy, all from the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick, did a number of experiments and found that the increased happiness amongst employees led to a 12% increase in productivity, while unhappy employees were 10% less productive. An impressive academic study, but... In 1776, Adam Smith said, quote, The wages of labor are the encouragement of industry, which, like every other human quality, improves in proportion to the encouragement it receives. A plentiful subsistence increases the bodily strength of the laborer, and the comfortable hope of bettering his condition, and of ending his days perhaps in ease and plenty, animates him to exert that strength to the utmost. Where wages are high, accordingly we shall always find the workmen more active, diligent, and expeditious than where they are low. So, once again, you know it. Smith said it first. Smith goes on to look at the, the lack of connection between wages and, and years of scarcity or, or abundance. He notes that, as best as he can tell, wages on the macro level actually go down in years of abundance while, when prices are low, and, and up in years of scarcity when prices are high. Again, he's looking here at the correlations between wages and the prices of goods to see what the connective tissue might be. There is clearly a connection between how well the society as a whole is doing and where wages will be, though it does at times seem to be a little counterintuitive when it comes to that connection. One would think that a society that is riding high with an abundance of goods would be one that has increased wages. 
But that doesn't seem to be the case. The lower prices of goods and, and increase in the number of laborers in the market serve to allow for a decrease in wages, while in leaner times, higher prices and, and fewer workers drive wages up. And, and we mentioned before, when assessing how an economy is doing, you can't just look at a single number like wages. You have to look at how wages relate to the rest of the economy. For example, if your wages were cut in half today, but on the same day, all prices of goods drop by 75%, uh, even by making less money, you're doing better because your purchasing power has increased. Now, such a dramatic shift doesn't usually happen, but the point is that you have to look at both wages and prices in order to get a grasp of what's really going on. He does point out one important exception, which is when it comes to uh, long distance and, and international trade. Normally, the wages of labor would be determined by the nature of the economy surrounding the business in which those wages are being paid. But if you're working for a manufacturer who makes products that are being sold somewhere else, then the connection breaks down. At that point, your wages are being determined by the economic conditions of the place where the goods are being sold. Quote, the produce of all great manufacturers for distant sale must nece necessarily depend not so much on the dearness or cheapness of the season in the countries where they are carried on, as upon the circumstances which affect the demand in the countries where they are consumed. Smith concludes the chapter by bringing together all the correlations that he, he's highlighted so far. The basic conclusion is that there are two main factors that drive the wages of labor. Now, this next quote is very long, but bear with me, because I think it's important to see the whole idea as, as Smith lays it out. He says here, quote, Though the variations in the price of labor not only do not always correspond with those of the price of provisions, but are frequently quite opposite, we must not, upon this account, imagine that the price of provisions has no influence upon that labor. The money price of labor is necessarily regulated by two circumstances, the demand for labor and the price of the necessaries and conveniences of life. The demand for labor according as it happens to be increasing stationary or declining or to require an increasing stationary or declining population determines the quantity and the necessaries and conveniences of life which must be given to the labor and the money price of labor is determined by what is requisite for purchasing this quantity though the money price of labor therefore is sometimes high where the price of provisions is low it would be still higher, the demand continuing the same, if the price of provisions was high. It is because the demand for labor increases in years of sudden and extraordinary plenty, and diminishes in those of sudden and extraordinary scarcity, that the money price of labor sometimes rises in the one and sinks in the other. In a year of sudden and extraordinary plenty, 
their funds in the hands of many of the employers of industry sufficient to maintain and employ a greater number of industrious people that had been employed the year before, and this extraordinary number cannot always be had. Those masters, therefore, who want more workmen bid against one another in order to get them, which sometimes raises both the real and the money price of their labor. The contrary of this happens in a year of sudden and extraordinary scarcity. The funds destined for employing industry are less than they had been the year before. A considerable number of people are thrown out of employment who bid against one another in order to get it, which sometimes lowers both the real and the money price of labor. In 1740, a year of extraordinary scarcity, many people were willing to work for bare subsistence. In the succeeding years of plenty, it was more difficult to get laborers and servants. The scarcity of a dear year by diminishing the demand for labor tends to lower its price, and the high price of provisions tends to raise it. The plenty of a cheap year, on the contrary, by increasing the demand tends to raise the price of labor, as the cheapness of provisions tends to lower it. In the ordinary variations of the price of provisions, those two opposite causes seem to counterbalance one another which is probably in part the reason why the wages of labor are everywhere so much more steady and permanent than the price of provisions. The increase in the wages of labor necessarily increases the price of many commodities by increasing that part of it which resolves itself into wages, and so far tends to diminish their consumption both at home and abroad. The same cause, however, which raises the wages of labor the increase of stock tends to increase its productive powers and to make a smaller quantity of labor produce a greater quantity of work. The owner of the stock, which employs a great number of laborers, necessary, necessarily endeavors, for his own advantage, to make such a proper division and distribution of employment that they may be enabled to produce the greatest quantity of work possible. For the same reason, he endeavors to supply them with the best machinery which either he or they can think of. What takes place among the laborers in a particular workhouse takes place, for the same reason, among those of a great society. The greater their number, the more they naturally divide themselves into different classes and subdivisions of employment. More heads are occupied in investing the, the most pro- or in in inventing the most proper machinery for executing the work of each, and it is, therefore, more likely to be invented. There are many commodities, therefore, which, in consequence of these improvements, come to be produced by so much less labor than before, that the increase of its price is more than compensated by the d- uh, diminution of its quantity. What Smith is talking about here is that while there are causal relationships between these factors, they they fall into a kind of cycle that is constantly transforming and and, and causing, uh, transforming causes into effects and effects into causes. And this is the critical idea that, that we've kept coming back to throughout the wealth of nations so far that in order to understand how the economy works and and why certain things happen, you have to understand how everything is related and interconnected throughout the economy. 
pulling on one string anywhere in the economy is going to cause reactions and counter reactions and counter counter reactions that all reverberate out from that one tiny pull of a string. A market system comes to, to, to a kind of balance and anything that affects or upsets that balance is going to be felt everywhere. And the shift that comes from that change is going to create compensations that work to create a, a new state of balance. And with that, that is our show for the day. Uh, as always, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, um, or again, I guess in for these episodes, why Adam Smith is wrong, uh, good luck, but uh, come on out and uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, you can post a comment, suggest a topic for a future episode. And uh, if you needed more reason to join the Facebook group, I recently posted the first OK, let me tell you why you're wrong t-shirt design there. Uh, for those of you interested in getting some of that sweet, sweet merch, uh, the It Depends t-shirt will uh, be available soon, and I'll be posting information about how to get them. And uh, don't worry, a second t-shirt design will be coming soon, possibly involving a certain economist and whether or not he said things before anyone else. So uh, be looking out for that. If you're not on Facebook, you can always email me uh, directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. It's all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, be sure to take a minute to give the podcast a rating and a review on iTunes, uh, had a, a little, little spike in ratings and reviews. And again, those always help to bump us up in the iTunes charts and get more people to notice the show. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music in the intro and outro. Uh, don't forget, I do have another podcast out there. It's called let's plan a wedding. And uh, it's myself and my fiance Mandy, and we talk about uh, the things involved in planning our wedding. Uh, once again, sorry for the delay in this week's episode. I'm, I'm going to keep those to, to a minimum, preferably, you know, none at all in the future. Uh, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with a topic episode. And then we will be back in two weeks with The Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 9. Uh, we are 99 pages in, only 929 more to go. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>